Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome to another episode of SCOTUS 101 and likely the final episode before the new year. Zach, what's the court up to this week? Well, GC, like the rest of us, they're trying to get things cleared out before their upcoming break. Uh, On the orders and grants front, uh, there wasn't much news this past week. There were no new cases granted, and there weren't any opinions either. So we'll go ahead and move straight into oral arguments. GC, what's up first? First up is Patel versus Garland. That's an immigration case that will determine the extent, if any, to which federal judges can review immigration court orders that deny discretionary relief. And second is Hughes versus Northwestern University, which involves a question of the fiduciary duties owed by those who control retirement accounts. The plaintiffs in this case allege that as administrator of its employees' retirement plans, Northwestern didn't try hard enough to minimize fees. Interestingly, the oral argument was less concerned with the historical origins and the scope of the fiduciary duty and more concerned uh, that lawsuits like these essentially allow plaintiffs to extort money from plan administrators who face an incentive to settle even meritless lawsuits rather than fight them. Next up is United States versus Taylor. The question the justices confronted in this case was whether an attempted Hobbs Act robbery could serve as the basis for a prosecution and a conviction under another federal statute that required, quote, the use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force. A lower federal court said that it could not qualify because an attempted robbery does not necessarily involve those same elements. During the oral arguments, the justices posed a number of very interesting hypotheticals about what would or would not qualify as a crime of violence. And Chief Justice John Roberts even referenced a scene from the movie Take the Money and Run, (laughs) where a bank robber's penmanship caused confusion uh, over his demands. And next up, we had Shin versus Ramirez. In that case, the court will decide whether criminals convicted in state courts can, when making habeas corpus claims in federal court, present evidence outside the state court record if their lawyers didn't do a good job in the state court. Under existing precedent, Martinez versus Ryan, habeas petitions are limited to the evidence presented in state court. But the defendants here argue that that rule unfairly penalizes them for having bad lawyers. Last up on the arguments front is the case of Carson v. Macon. Uh, This case has been closely watched by those who are interested in religious liberty issues. Now, the issues in this case are similar to the issues that the court decided last term in Espinoza v. Montana Department of Revenue. In the Espinoza case, the court ruled that the Montana Constitution's no-aid provision, which prohibited providing funds to parents simply because they sent their children to religious schools, violated the First Amendment's free exercise clause. Uh, Montana's no-aid provision was commonly known as a Blaine Amendment, and it's something that many states have implemented in the past. In this case, the state of Maine tried to get around the court's prohibition by essentially saying that the state was not prohibiting funds from going to students who attend religious schools because of those schools' religious status, but whether it was preventing the funds from going to those schools because of the school's religious or, quote, sectarian instruction. Imagine that a religious school that actually teaches religion. (laughs) 
As the Institute for Justice, uh, which is representing the petitioners in this case, said, this is a distinction without a difference. And based on the question at oral argument, it certainly seems like there are at least six justices who agree with that position. Next up, we have our interview for this week with Chuck Cooper. We're pleased to be joined today by Chuck Cooper, who is an experienced constitutional litigator and Supreme Court advocate, and who is the founding member and chairman of the Cooper & Kirk Law Firm. Chuck, thank you so much for joining the show today. Well, thank you for having me, Zach. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Well, we're excited to have you on. And before we dive into your legal career and talk a little bit about your experiences, I wanted to ask you kind of a a baseline question. What made you want to be a lawyer? (laughs) Well, uh, oh, gee, uh, you know, law was actually plan B for me, Zach. <laughs> I, I had uh, grown up uh, dreaming of being the uh, shortstop for the Los Angeles Dodgers. <laughs> and I, was a, I was actually a pretty fair high school baseball player. Uh, and uh, but it, 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 it wasn't long <laughs> after that playing some college baseball that I realized that, well, uh, the chances of that happening, plan A, are not <laughs> very good. Uh, and and so I switched to plan B. I had always enjoyed, always enjoyed uh, uh, government classes, civics classes, uh, uh, talking about, thinking about issues of public policy, politics, sure. all of the things that, you know, seem to go best, or at least to, to my mind, hand in hand with law and and the study of law and the practice of law. And so uh, that's where I focused my my attention and my <laughs> and my shift in ambitions. <laughs> and now I know you attended law school at the University of Alabama, and you had a very successful uh, career there. You served as the editor-in-chief of the Law Review and graduated uh, first in your class. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your experience at uh, Alabama and the law school there and, and what that was like? Well, sure. Um, it was uh, a very busy time. It was back in the... Uh, you know, mid seventies, actually, I graduated in 1977. So, so I'm, uh, obviously aging myself here. Uh, but, uh, that was, uh, geez, that was, I think pre heritage foundation. I'm sure it was pre fed stock. And, and so there wasn't, uh, there, there wasn't anything like the kinds of outlets for, uh, pursuing uh, conservative legal uh, thought and hearing from uh, conservative legal scholars, or at least not uh, in, in the, the kind of organized way there is now. Uh, so sure. that was really a, 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 a real vacuum uh, during the time when I was going through law school and it's much, much different now, to, thankfully. But it was a busy, busy time. Now, I know after law school, you clerked uh, both for Judge Paul Roney on the Fifth Circuit and then for then-Associate Justice William Rehnquist on the Supreme Court. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about those experiences? Sure. Uh, well, they were, even now, you know, 40-some uh, years later, uh, they were two of the highlights of my legal career. It's uh, it's extraordinary that uh, uh, that kind of an experience is one that 
very lucky, fortunate uh, young lawyers, pretty fresh out of law school, have at the, you know, in the opening uh, stage of their career. But it was still that uh, extraordinary and that much of a highlight that uh, it's way up at, uh, you know, uh, in, in the top level of, of my career. Judge Roney was, uh, I, you know, I will have to say, I think he's may have been the best man I've ever met, best gentleman. Mm-hmm. Uh, a man who uh, uh, was not just an extraordinary jurist and, and the care and the thought and the devotion, conscientiousness that he put into his job of of judging and resolving disputes between contesting parties, but the care he had for the for everyone really, but especially his law clerks, his law clerk families, he cared about. Mm-hmm their uh you know their quality of life while working for him always asking about their families insisting that they tend to the to the responsibilities of family before anything else yeah. uh he was just a wonderful man a man of extraordinary integrity my first my eldest son is named after him yeah. um justice Rehnquist was uh that that you know i mean i i think every former supreme court Clerk looks upon that as a, you know, just a pivotal event in their law career. Certainly, it was for me. It, it uh, undoubtedly opened doors to me, as I think it does sure. to every young uh, lawyer who has that extraordinary experience. That um, very likely uh, would would never have been opened, and uh, has led to. Uh, opportunities for me that, uh, and, and events and highlights in my career ever since. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just being around uh, a man like him, like Bill Rehnquist, with his good humor, his good will, his good cheer, his integrity, his unbelievable intellect. <laughs> yeah. You know, the clerks, uh, the clerks who have worked for him and you can a you can you can age a clerk who is a Rehnquist clerk in terms of the period whether it was pre chief or post chief <laughs> by whether sure. they refer to him as the boss and that's pre chief or uh, or the chief and of course <laughs> I'm in the boss category having clerked for him in OT seventy eight but it, none of us uh, you know think that uh, we even come close to being his intellectually equal uh, and he just didn't need us but uh, it was very <laughs> nice that he used us and uh, we got to uh, contribute to his uh, his work uh, at least for a, a very short year. It was a wonderful year and uh, you know the memories from that time just cascade through my mind whenever I think back on it. Are there any particular memories or experiences that stand out to you? Or were there any traditions uh, that Justice Rehnquist uh, had with his clerks that, that stand out? Yes, uh, there, there are many, many. One of the most endearing memories and traditions is that he he had a bad back, you know, and of course that's not a good memory, but the fact sure. that he, it, he, he would need to and want to go on walks uh, mm-hmm. in, on Capitol Hill. 
and uh, to you know relieve the strains on his backs and otherwise to uh, think uh, and discuss cases. And he would invariably grab a law clerk and you'd you'd go with him on these long walks around the Supreme Court building and there in, on Capitol Hill. Oftentimes uh, he would grab all the clerks and we'd go to some uh, lunch eatery there, uh, you know, on Pennsylvania Avenue or in the uh, close by. And uh, they're just wonderful memories. But those long walks with uh, Justice Rehnquist talking about cases, working out, out issues with him uh, that he was confronting as a justice and uh, it's just an unbelievable experience. Excellent. Now, after you clerked for Justice Rehnquist, I know you briefly worked in private practice, and then you left uh, private practice to join the Reagan administration Mm -hmm. in the Civil Rights Division at uh, DOJ. Uh, What made you decide Mm -hmm. to leave private practice, and what did you do in the Civil Rights Division? Well, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I did have a couple of years of private practice after finishing my clerkship. I had, re- I had actually returned to the South. I, re- I went to Atlanta for two years and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and worked in a wonderful law firm there. Uh, but I, I, I didn't realize how, you know, how, how badly infected I had gotten with, I don't know, I think they call it the beltway fever or something like that. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I I just really enjoyed everything about Washington. And I, again, I, I didn't realize it until I'd left. I got very much involved in the Reagan uh, campaign, the Reagan-Bush okay. campaign. When I say very much, as much as a you know young associate billing eighty hours a week can get involved, right, <laughs> right. But uh, but I did uh, get involved enough to even be a delegate to the Georgia State Republican Convention there as a young mm. associate and a Reagan convention, and and so as soon as uh, that wonderful lightning bolt struck on election day and Ronald Reagan was elected. <laughs> Uh, and of course I was in Georgia. And so, you know, Jimmy Carter, right. <laughs> I, within the firm, I, I probably was the only vote that would have been cast for, uh, Ronald <laughs> Reagan that, that I was in. But, uh, but anyway, I sent my resume into the department of justice, Zach, uh, in a, in a bid to, uh, you know, kind of come back to DC and in a, uh, help Ronald Reagan and his his uh, his revolution to uh, make some changes. And one day I was at lunch, and this was a few weeks later, and I've more or less forgotten that I even sent the resume in. I was at lunch, and there was a there was a uh, uh, when I got back, and there was one of these call messages on my chair, and it was sure. from a fellow named Ken Starr, <laughs> <laughs> and. and uh, of course, I'd never heard of Ken Starr. Nobody had ever heard of Ken Starr at the time, but he was counselor to William French Smith, the attorney general. Mm-hmm. And he invited me, to, I called him, he invited me to come up and interview with uh, a couple of people who were there, just arrived with the Reagan uh, Justice Department, Ted Olson, 
and William Bradford Reynolds. And I ended up going to work for Brad Reynolds in the Civil Rights Division. So it was the smartest thing I ever did was, or at least one of them certainly, was uh, joining the Reagan revolution there in the Department of Justice. It was uh, an extraordinary seven and a half, almost eight years. I stayed both terms and, um, you know, led to every good thing that's happened since. Right. Now, after you worked in the Civil Rights Division, you actually were appointed by President Reagan to head the Office of Legal Counsel. Uh, could you just briefly tell us what that office is, what it does, and uh, what was your experience like heading uh, that very important office? Sure. Well, I just mentioned Ted Olson. He was the Assistant Attorney General for the Office of Legal Counsel when Ken sent me down to interview with him. And uh, I guess in a in uh, a wonderful irony, I was, I became his successor uh, in the office when he left after the first term and Ed Meese came in to succeed William French Smith. And I'd become close to Ed uh, during the first term, uh, mainly through his counselor, his uh, first Lieutenant, if you will, Ken Cribb. Mm. Uh, but um Anyway, uh, you know, for then still very young lawyer, uh, that was uh, truly uh, uh, extraordinary for uh, Ed Meese, who I revered then and I revere to this day, uh. to invite me to come and be essentially the government's principal lawyer, his lawyer in the Office of Legal Counsel and the lawyer to the entire executive branch. OLC, uh, I know you know this, Zach, but uh, OLC is the office within the Justice Department, a very small office. At the time, we had about 15 lawyers on average, a very small office, but it provides the legal opinions on the, the really difficult, oftentimes, and important constitutional issues right. that arise uh, during the course of a of a presidential administration, the the um, and very difficult federal statutory issues that will arise, and on matter, on legal disputes within the executive branch, uh, the the attorney general resolves those disputes. When you have, for example, a couple of cabinet agencies with a disagreement, and OLC is the body uh, within the department that the attorney general relies upon to assist him in that function. Uh, but also just to give legal advice generally to the president and to the executive branch, it's an extraordinary um, uh, job and function. It was uh, in, an enormous honor to have served in that office and in that capacity, especially for Ronald Reagan and Ed Meese. I should mention that it, it was the job in the Department of Justice that Bill Rehnquist had when he was in the Nixon administration. And so I had heard from him, you know, he even said as an assist, associate justice that that was the best job he ever had. Wow. Um, <laughs> after he became chief, he stopped saying that. <laughs> but he said it when I was his law clerk. And, and so for me to end up uh, also uh, serving in that in that job uh, was just an unbelievable honor and, and joy. 
Excellent. Now, I know after you left government service, you returned to private practice, and eventually you started your own firm, which is now Cooper and Kirk. Uh, mm. So what made you want to start your own firm, and were there any particular challenges uh, during that process? Well, uh, uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> look, uh, I had always thought of myself as a litigator. Uh, that sure. was, I guess, one of the main reasons that, uh, you know, I, I went and joined a litigation practice right out of my clerkship in Atlanta. Uh, when I came to the Department of Justice, I went to the, a litigating division, the Civil Rights Division. Sure. And of course, I was animated by the kinds of changes that Ronald Reagan came in pledging uh, to to make within is in the civil rights area. It was the era of quotas and, and busing and what have you. And sure. so um, I was very interested in those issues and uh, being part of that. But, but um, I, some, I, you know, I wanted to be and uh, uh, am a litigator. And so I, I, um, I have always thought of, or the vision I had of the practice of law was in a small boutique like setting. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I joined two very big law firms. I, at least I practiced in two very big law firms after I left the department of justice. And while they're great firms and with great practices and, you know, there are many advantages that a big law firm has over a small one. Uh, I, I still never, uh, abandoned the vision that I, I think I just developed uh, early on when I started thinking about uh, being a lawyer, of practicing in a, uh, you know, almost uh, professional family context with a group of lawyers that uh, were, you know, extraordinarily gifted sure. with, with uh, impeccable integrity and character. And, um, and, and, uh, who, who are friends and who are like-minded in, in at least the important respects. And so, uh, I, when it, when it looked like the practice that I and my then colleague, uh, were, had, were developing would sustain a mm. law firm, uh, a small law firm, uh, we decided to go ahead and take the risk and make that jump. It was, it was fueled really, or enabled, I should say, by a case that I argued in the Supreme Court and prevailed in called Windstar against the United States, which, uh, had generated a lot of uh, business both before the Supreme Court's decision, uh, favorable decision to my my client's uh, case, but it it created quite a bit more a business for our small firm sure. after uh, the decision, and so that that's kind of the short story. But uh, yeah, there are ch- enormous challenges from you know uh, separating from colleagues that you very much value and like, and that's not sure. an easy process. Uh, uh, and it's a difficult one to to uh, actually ultimately decide to do to um you know even things as mundane as 
finding space <laughs> to uh, relocate right. in and and uh, 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 what have you. Those were the in in the days when you know before email, uh, even. right? And so right. there were a lot of <laughs> a, a lot of uh, logistical Look. problems that just don't exist today. Sure. Now, I understand that you fly a flag outside of your law firm. It has a sword on it and a Latin phrase. Uh, can you tell us about what that Latin phrase is and why you fly that flag? Sure. <laughs> well, it's it's really part of the culture of our, our firm. We think it's very important to have fun as lawyers if whenever that is possible to do so. Sure. <laughs> and we, But we take very seriously our devotion to prevailing for our clients. And our, uh, our, we opened our firm with a motto, Winkere aut more, which is Latin for victory or death. Mm. And, and so obviously it's, it's, uh, it's, it's both serious, but both tongue in cheek. I once, uh, I, I like to quip that it, it was a one line associates manual victory or death. <laughs> and I remember telling that to Chief Judge John Roberts when he was a fellow practitioner over at Hogan. And uh, <laughs> he had a good laugh out of it that it's an associate smile. He says, well, we have a similar, we have a similar uh, uh, admonition. We say victory or a stern talking to. <laughs> so we had a good laugh about that. And it's just popping back into my head now. I, so I, <laughs> you might be interested to hear that. But um, we, we opened with that motto. We later uh, combined it with a, with a logo, which is a laurel wreath with a sword underneath it. And so that our flag, which which we flew from our first day uh, uh, opening, we now it now bears our logo and our our motto, and we fly it whenever we have a big victory. Excellent. Uh, we own our own building in D.C., and but before we did we uh, obviously would have to lease space. And one of the things we insisted on from our landlord was the right to fly our flag on their flagpole. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so we have it. We actually had clauses in our leases, which had to be approved, you know, uh, by the owners of the building. They'd never seen anything sure. like that. But uh, we insisted on, you know, uh, at least six times a year, they would allow us to fly our flag over That's their buildings. Uh, but then, then we went and bought our own building. We have our own flagpole. We can fly it whenever we want to. Excellent. Now, you mentioned uh, that the ability to open your firm was driven by a case you had in the Supreme Court. And I know you've argued eight cases uh, before the Supreme Court, including a number of high-profile cases, including things like the line item veto, the same-sex marriage case out of California, Hollingsworth versus Perry, and then uh, a significant religious liberty case as well. Uh, what can you tell us about your experience arguing before the Supreme Court? And again, do any particular memories stand out to you? There are a lot of memories from those from the arguments. You know, uh, they are. <laughs> and no matter how many times you've been there, it's it's uh, you know you never 
lose the butterflies, if you will. And sure. uh, it can be a nerve wracking experience. I think uh, arguing to Justice Scalia, <laughs> who seemed to take a particular delight in being tough on his friends, and I'd had a long-standing uh, friendship with Justice Scalia uh, before he went on the court, and and, uh, and certainly throughout the time of his tenure on the court. Uh, and so he could be tough, especially, but sure. he was tough on everybody. But it just, I don't know, it just seemed like, geez, <laughs> even, even when you know he's on your side, <laughs> he could be tough. I, I will say, I think that one of the most uh, rewarding uh, uh, experiences as a, an advocate was to argue the first time I did after Sam Alito became an associate justice. Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier being at the Office of Legal Counsel. And Zach, uh, Sam Alito was uh, was my deputy in the mm -hmm. Office of Legal Counsel. I had urged him. We had become quite close uh, during the first term uh, when he was in the Solicitor General's office. And I... And I uh, I should say I, I mean, our division, the Civil Rights Division, had quite a few cases uh, that sure were very so. controversial. And uh, Sam Molinito and I really uh, bonded. We we were very simpatico in terms of uh, how we approached the issues. And that honestly kind of distinguished him within the Solicitor General's office at the time. Mm -hmm. And... Um, uh, and I, when I, when Ed Meese asked me to, to to move over and serve in the Office of Legal Counsel, I asked him, asked Sam to come over, uh, and uh, we spent uh, two years as as uh, very close colleagues, and to argue a case before him as Justice Alito was uh, was was just uh, you know, a wonderful uh, experience. He's a wonderful justice, a wonderful man. And, uh, and, and so I, I remember that with special fondness and I've argued, sure. a, you know, a couple of cases, a few cases now since while he's been on the bench. I did want to briefly ask you about uh, two cases that you you're litigating right now. One has been granted cert before the court. Uh, that's FEC versus uh, Cruz. And then I know you also have a, uh, a cert petition pending an important Chevron uh, case. Uh, so if you don't mind, could you tell us briefly about the uh, the case that's pending before the court, uh, the FEC versus uh, Ted Cruz case? Sure, sure. Well, it's a case I represent uh, Senator Cruz in. Uh, and by the way, just a perhaps interesting piece of background. Uh, within a year of the time we started our firm back in 1998, I guess it was. Uh. Yeah, we just, we're just now celebrating our 25th anniversary, so it's 1996. Well, congratulations. Thank you, thank you. But the first associate we hired from uh, was Ted Cruz. Wow. Yeah, he, he had been clerking for Justice Rehnquist, and that's how I got to know him through that uh, common uh, common background. And Ted Cruz came to work for us as uh, you know, a new associate. And he and I have been very close ever since. But uh, I represent him in a challenge in this case to a provision of the uh, of the federal uh, election campaign act uh, that 
it doesn't limit the amount that a candidate can lend the candidate's campaign, but it limits the amount that the campaign can repay to the candidate using funds that are uh, contributed to a campaign after the election. It limits that amount that can be repaid to $250,000 of, of, of contributions raised after an election. Mm. The, the court has, you know, since Buckley versus Vallejo, a very, you know, famous uh, election law case, right. uh, held that a candidate's ability to support his or her own campaign is protected by the First Amendment and can and can be limited only by uh, the government's compelling concerns in preventing quid pro quo corruption. And so this court has struck down uh, a series of of uh, restrictions on uh, a candidate's ability to uh, provide resources to his or her own campaign. And we believe this this uh, this uh, restriction on candidate loans uh, is also a uh, uh, unconstitutional under uh, the First Amendment, and the and the case was decided by a three judge district court, which is now a very unusual procedure. This area of the law is one of the few areas remaining where the Congress has placed jurisdiction not in a single district court but in a three judge district court composed of two district court judges and one court of appeals judge. And they, and and there's an automatic appeal from any such decision and this is part of the Supreme Court's mandatory jurisdiction. So the court went, and, and we prevailed in the three-judge district court. They agreed, uh, the court agreed with us that this violates the First Amendment. And so it's the government who is seeking to take that case to the Supreme Court. And the court has recently uh, noted its jurisdiction and set it down for argument. So uh, that's that case, and it's you know I, we think it's a uh, another in a series of important First Amendment decisions. The most uh, famous of which is probably Citizens United, sure. uh, most controversial of which, but it it it, uh, it is one of the latest. Uh, it will be the latest decision in the Supreme Court's jurisprudence uh, stemming from the Buckley case. I know you also have a, a cert petition pending that addresses an important Chevron issue. Uh, so if you don't mind, could you uh, tell us about that? Yeah, sure. Well, um, this is a case uh, in, involving a, a, an administrative regulation that determine and so that determined that what are known as bump stocks, uh, it determined that they were machine guns, and in in and uh, in making that determination during the Trump administration, the Department of Treasury reversed itself 180 degrees because for decades, really, it had ruled that they that these uh, devices called bump stocks are not machine guns and therefore cannot be prohibited and regulated and restricted in the way that machine guns are. Mm. The, 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 the uh, Treasury Department, in defending its uh, regulation, 
disavowed, openly disavowed Chevron. And of course, as you know, Chevron is the doctrine that says an agency's interpretation of its own statute is entitled to deference by the courts, is entitled to the courts, even if the court disagrees with the right. agency's interpretation as, 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 as a matter of, you know, uh, original uh, uh, understanding or whatever, using the traditional canons of statutory construction, even if the court disagrees, unless that agency interpretation is unreasonable, uh, the, the court will defer to it and, and uphold it. Right. Uh, now, there are a lot of reasons to think that Chevron itself uh, is unconstitutional. I, I believe that, and I've, uh, I've published uh, articles uh, taking that position. Mm -hmm. uh, Justice Clarence Thomas has, has uh, oftentimes opined uh, about serious constitutional doubts with the Chevron doctrine. But, mm -hmm. but this case doesn't really raise the constitutional questions. It just raises the question whether or not when an agency doesn't seek uh, deference for its view, and even as the Treasury Department in this case did, disavows the notion that it is entitled to deference, can a court nonetheless give it deference? Mm. Uh, and that's what the courts have done in this in this particular instance. Three courts now, including the Tenth Circuit, which uh, is the case uh, uh, where which is where this case was decided over the dissent, by the way, of five justice judges of that in bank court. Uh, the, the the court basically said uh, that the agency can't disavow Chevron deference. You know, if they don't even, whether they want it or not, the courts are going to cram it down their throats. Right. Uh, and we think that's, we don't, we, we can't imagine that's correct. And we've asked the court to hear that. The other, it raises another issue too. And that's whether Chevron deference is appropriate in a criminal case, because this is, this is a criminal statute that this mm. regulation is, uh, is interpreting. And that's a that has always been a controversial issue, and most courts have said no, you cannot uh, yeah. give deference when the when the when it's the prosecutor effectively mm -hmm. who is interpreting the statute. Uh, the 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 it, it is the accused who's entitled to the benefit of any doubt of an ambiguous criminal sure. statute. So sure. those two issues are very important issues. Uh, are uh, presented in this uh, petition that uh, that you've mentioned. And what's the name of that case, Chuck? So we can be sure to uh, to follow along with that case. Yes, it's Apostian. Uh, Apostian, A P O S H I A N, uh, against the uh, ATF. Excellent, excellent. And I have a final question. We ask all of our guests here on SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? Oh, wow. Uh, geez. <laughs> that, that is a very tough question. Um, you know, wow. Who wouldn't <laughs> want to spend, uh, you know, an afternoon over a uh, a cold beer or a 
or a neat uh, scotch <laughs> or a glass of wine talking with Justice, Chief Justice Marshall or Joseph yeah. Story or Oliver Wendell Holmes or Taft or Brandeis. Sure. Uh, that's, uh, that's a very hard question. But for me, I think it would be Robert Jackson. Hmm. He is the justice that William Rehnquist uh, uh, clerked for. And he was an extraordinary man. Uh, he didn't go to law school. He learned law, reading law, as they did hmm. in the law office of a uh, then uh, experienced practitioner. He became the uh, solicitor general uh, and was, from all accounts, perhaps one of the greatest advocates ever to uh, approach the lectern in the Supreme Court. He's certainly Mm -hmm. among the greatest. Uh, They say that when he he, uh, resigned... uh, and he, you know, of course, then became an, an associate justice. It w- was remarked that uh, some of the justices had uh, remarked that they wish he could become solicitor general for life. <laughs> uh, he he was just an extraordinary gifted advocate, and he was among the best writers I think ever to be uh, uh, a member of the court. Uh, the, the court has had ex- many, many very gifted uh, writers, powerful writers, but I think he was among the, uh, certainly among those who were the most uh, gifted at uh, turning a phrase. Sure. Uh, and uh, his phrases are among the most quoted, uh, well-turned phrases in the, uh, in the U.S. reports. Right. But the other thing that uh, I find fascinating about him is that he uh, took a uh, leave from the court to be the chief prosecutor in Nuremberg. Right. And, uh, you know, and in that respect, I think, I guess, isn't unique because Warren uh, took a leave of from his responsibilities to head the Warren Commission on the Kennedy assassination. I don't know the extent to which he kept up with uh, work on the court, but certainly Justice Jackson, having uh, uh, had to uh, go to Europe to uh, be the chief prosecutor and stay there for quite a while, uh, may, I'm not sure about this, but certainly very unusual, perhaps unique. Uh, And... From my own reading of law and events and and law-related writing, among the most powerful writing I have ever been exposed to is his closing argument at Nuremberg. Mm. If you've never read that, Zach, I highly uh, recommend it. It keeps the hair standing on the back of your neck for page Mm. after page. It's amazing. He was an amazing man, and I, I would love to spend uh, you know an afternoon talking with uh, Robert Jackson. 
Sure. Absolutely. Well, Chuck, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us on the podcast here today. And we'd love to have you back again uh, in the future, anytime you'd like to come back on. So thank you so much. Zach, thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure to be on SCOTUS 101 with you. Thank you. Well, Zach, do you know what time it is? I do. And let's, uh, let's get it over with, you It's see? my favorite time and your <laughs> least favorite time. I get to grill you in trivia. Listen, I think we all know I'm no Jeopardy all-star, uh, but I'll, uh, I'll see what I can do here. So let's get to it. All right. So this week, uh, trivia's theme is law professors at the Supreme Court. Oh, interesting. So getting cited, getting one of your law review articles cited in a Supreme Court opinion is one of the highest badges of honor that a legal scholar can obtain. So I thought those uh, citations would be a rich source of trivia, and I was right. So, Zach, are you ready? Let's do it. Number one, to set the stage. Some years ago, one of the current justices gave a speech lamenting the disconnect between legal academia and legal practice. This justice said, and I quote, Pick up a copy of any law review that you see, and the first article is likely to be The Influence of Immanuel Kant on Evidentiary Approaches in 18th Century Bulgaria or something. <laughs> Which justice skewered the academy like that? I remember this well. Uh, it came out while I was still in law school, and uh, it was Chief Justice John Roberts. That is correct. That is correct. He was lamenting the fact that the Academy seems uh, all too often to be producing work that is not actually useful to those practicing law. But you know what's funny about that, GC? Uh, law professor Oren Kerr actually took that statement as a challenge and he actually produced a short, humorous uh, law review article that was later published in The Green Bag uh, that talked about the influence of Immanuel Kant on evidentiary approaches in 18th century Bulgaria. So the Chief Justice actually inspired uh, a piece of uh, legal scholarship. <laughs> yeah, um, leave it to Oren Kerr, also uh, somebody who uh, is very often cited by the Supreme Court. So he's, he's in a good position to poke back at the Chief. Yeah, I think it is a humorous article, and I think, uh, I hope uh, the Chief Justice uh, appreciated the, <laughs> the humor. All right, nicely done on number one. Number two, the website Empirical SCOTUS, run by Dr. Adam Feldman, provides a bunch of interesting stats about Supreme Court citations. His most recent study on the subject is from 2018. Uh, according to that study, what was the most cited law review? So I've actually seen that study as well, GC, and I remember it was an Ivy League uh, law review. I think it was either Columbia or Harvard, uh, but what stood out to me the most was I don't think the Yale Law Journal uh, ranked very high uh, in his study. That is correct. Actually, you and you were right about number one is Columbia. Harvard is number two, so I'm going to give you that point. Right. Uh, Georgetown, NYU, and Chicago were tied for three. And you're right. Yale was somewhere outside of the top 10. I think it was the 11th. Mm. Number three. Of the 16 most cited law reviews, all but one were the flagship law journal of their university. Which journal was the exception? It's the esteemed Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. They do great work. That's right. Uh, a journal near and dear to my own heart. It punched way above its weight, beating out even Stanford, Yale, Berkeley, and others. Excellent. Which justice cited law review articles the most? Mm. Now, this one's tough, GC. You threw me a curveball here at the <laughs> end. 
I am going to say, I'm going to guess Justice Thomas, uh, because he talks a lot about uh, issues, takes a different approach than some of the other justices sometimes. So I'll guess Justice Thomas. Zach, your intuition was exactly right, which means you've gone four for four, which means I'm going to leave trivia today very disappointed. You know, a broken clock is right twice a day, GC. So I'll <laughs> well, you it. were right four times today, so well done. <laughs> <laughs> Justice Thomas was the justice who most cited law review articles, and it wasn't even close. 79 citations in the 2016 and 2017 wow. terms. Justice Gorsuch was second with 44. Uh, and at the other end of the spectrum, Justice Kagan and Chief Justice Roberts with three and two citations, respectively. Well done, Zach. Well, it'd be really interesting if uh, if the Chief Justice can find a way to uh, work a cite into Oren's Greenback article <laughs> into a future opinion. <laughs> but that was great trivia, GC. Uh, well done. And that's all we have for today. As a reminder, this will be our last episode before the court goes on its Christmas hiatus, unless we get any big surprise opinions. Uh, so we hope you all have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And we'll see you again in the new year once the court begins hearing cases again. But thank you to everyone for listening. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.